episode uh we're gonna have a little bit of fun with this this is one that i mentioned in an earlier episode um and then i had a couple emails about it which honestly surprised me and that's last time i mentioned it so you've heard me mention it if you listen to some of the other episodes and now i'm gonna bring it back up because i mentioned it in the mandela effect episode where it was one of those weird things that like this this was what it was i mean how dramatic and everything this black tom island was and how much effect it really had on history I had really never heard of it and a lot of people think this one is a Mandela effect that maybe this was one that you know maybe this was something that changed in this 2012 crossover when all of a sudden there was like this mass death for Native Americans whatever theory you have it's still fascinating to me that nobody has heard of it or heard of this this was one of those things that me and Big D even talked about that maybe it's one of those things like a you know, uh, a territorial thing where I- if you live in New York, you either hear more about it or it's just something that, you know, really don't people don't know about. It's like one of those things I find I was surprised by how many people don't know what Galloping Gertie is. Over here in the Northwest, we know Galloping is coming to Oak Bridge. I mean, literally, the bridge fell down. Um, it's a huge thing in our history that we know about in the Northwest because it's right there in our backyard, right there in the neighborhood. I grew up in Virginia Beach, Massachusetts. Close. Um, well, actually, technically, the Mule Island is in Virginia. I mean, that's an old lady who used to live there when I was in Virginia, but you know what I mean. So it's one of those things that we thought maybe that's what it was, but we got a bunch of emails. We got a, we got a few emails of people saying that when I mentioned this, they were like, I've never heard of this. What, what's Black Tom Island? What's the Black Tom explosion? So they went and looked at it, and these are people from New York, New Jersey, places that were affected by this. because on the Mandela effect, like I said, people say like this was one of those things that people remember going up into, you know, the arm and up into the throat because it's actually over there. And as we go through and talk about this story, we're going to find out why that's really impressive. It, it didn't happen. So if this story is true and real, we're going to know how it happened. So, Yes. So we will go into the Black Tom Explosion. I got my information there, so I hope this is real. So I'm from History.com. You know, I'm on the Forgotten History. There's a bunch of different places that I went to to find this. Um, I tried getting, I really wanted some of the original newsreel from um, 1916 when this happened, but that little snippet that I showed in the very beginning, that's all I could get. I mean, that's all I could find. I, I even searched, um, I mean, I guess my Google search is really, really impressive for no reason. 
So we will go into this one. So it, it's one of those things that Black Tamarind is a very interesting one because partly there's different stories that I've read on why it was called Black Tamarind. Um, one of the stories was that it was, you know, the island originally only a part, a small portion of it was above ground. looked like a pyramid so it became black tamarind that was one the one that i see more often though is that it was called black tam island because a african-american man named frank lived on the island and fished from it and that became black tamarind that was a more common version of black tamarind um yeah it was not that big to begin with one of those weird things and I mean I don't know it's hard to really wrap my finger because it, it's I mean this is in the deep south too there's not a lot of pictures I mean they found pictures of it afterwards and everything like that but it was it was basically an island that was right off of in the New York Harbor off of New Jersey um, near the Statue of Liberty which a lot of people don't know this I mentioned this in the episode the Statue of Liberty wasn't actually is not on Ellis Island Liberty Island, um, unless you're near there, of course. Um, and it's considered, unless you, you know, obviously you go and check it out from the internet, but don't go there. Um, the blast was considered the largest non-nuclear um, artificial blast in the state of history. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, it wasn't a small explosion talking about massive explosions and like I said there it is considered which we didn't have that for scale we didn't have all that back then but like I said it is it is considered to be the largest artificial explosion in history in the state of history um, it's huge huge um, it's uh, let's see here night of July 30th, 1916, so, I mean, almost 106 years ago, almost to the day, I mean, we're, we're you know, as I record this, it's August 3rd, so, almost to the day, 106, yeah, 106 years ago, so, um, <laughs> so, and it was huge, like I said, a huge explosion, but we'll get to the explosion here in a bit and how it happened, um, and all the damage it did. Like I said, huge explosion. Um, and originally, it wasn't considered such. Um, originally, it was blamed on completely other means. So, and this was 1916, so we were not in World War II yet. Um, and as we talk about this, I will mention over and over again, a lot of people do believe now that this was an attempt get us into World War One. Um, a lot of people really believe that uh, Pearl Harbor was also an attempt to get us into World War Two. Um, so, and it's one of those things that I mean, you see stuff like this, and it does 
cause us to go into you know wars so um yeah 1916 one of the largest non-nuclear artificial explosions occurred in the united states an explosion america seems to have forgotten ever happened and that was about that time as well so we'll talk about here we'll go into it as to what it was so Black Tom Island was an island located next to Liberty Island in the New York Harbor. The island itself was man-made and was a landfill. So there was, and that's one of the things that a lot of people, you know, don't think would have reacted with it the most, that it was the actual island that we're talking about was an island. There was an island. Black Tom Island was a lot smaller. That was our big thing. Um, But I've heard different reports on whether it was one of those ones that the island was reports where it was just like one small like one piece that wasn't that whole like that's what that was um but it wasn't that big so but then they made it bigger with by using like blowing it up with with hydrogen it was basically a giant trash island so the island extended to a 25 acre landmass used as a shipping depot it was also had a railroad and causeway that was built that connected black tom island to the mainland Eventually, a lot of things that I read, too, eventually it actually got so big that the island was actually cut in the middle. Um, So the Lehigh Valley Railroad Company owned the island from 1905 to 1916 and added a mile-long pier, which housed warehouses. Um, At the time, in 1916, the island was one of the major munitions depots in the northeastern United States. United States was not yet involved in World War One at that time and was considered neutral. But the U.S. was legally permitted to sell munitions and was the source of 75% of the Allies' weapons. So technically we were neutral, but we only supposedly only sold to the Allies. Uh, the United States refused to sell war supplies to the German Navy, only the Allies to bring stored munitions. Um, many people believe the spies in the German Empire were sent to the U.S. to stop the production of Allied munitions. These munitions were picked up and some of them as weapons to kill German soldiers. So, um, so that's kind of a little bit of the background. Not a huge background. I mean, I could go into more of a background, but I mean, it really Basically, it was a trash island with a lot of warehouses on it, and that's all it was. So, um, so on the, the day before the explosion, on July 29th, 1916, at Black Tom Island, um, freight cars and barges loaded with more than two million pounds, two million pounds of explosives and munitions waited at Black Tom Island. Munitions, munitions, all the dynamite, TNT, bullets, and shrapnel aboard the city ship were picked down. One of the barges that had legally arrived at Black Tom Island could weigh 25,000 beers loaded with over 100,000 pounds of munitions. As the, though the depot had this much inland storage, there wasn't a security gate and two watchmen were working there. At 2.08 a.m. on July 30th, 1916, the first Black Tom by a second explosion at 2.40 a.m. With over 2 million pounds of munitions loaded to the depot, the Black Tom explosion was now a history. 
13 warehouse guns found were destroyed, 6 tools were burned, 5 were thrown or brazen, and I believe that the bomb that triggered the second explosion and the 375 foot by 175 foot crater was plastic in nature. The black cone explosion created detonations of 50% combustion triggered shockwave that could travel at rates of 25 to 1,000 feet per second. The detonation wave was strong enough to lift firefighters and their team out of their boots and into the air. The force of the wave has been determined to be that of a 5.5 earthquake shock. The explosion's wave was said to reach as far as Maryland and Philadelphia. People were searching for landmines. Just kidding. Any, any smart parties want to talk about that? Maryland and Philadelphia. New York Harbor. An explosion that was felt in Maryland and Philadelphia. And not just felt, felt enough to waken people out of their sleep. That's a pretty crazy day. So the blast sent debris far enough to hit the Statue of Liberty, which, like I said earlier, is the reason we can no longer come to her church today, because of the damage caused by the explosion. Debris even hit a clock tower that was a mile away. Almost all the windows in lower Manhattan were blown out. Plates of glass in Times Square scattered, some shards of glass raining down on the street. Windows were shattered at 25 miles away from Blackstone Warehouse. Residents of Manhattan and New Jersey were so scared that they ran over their homes barefoot in their pajamas into the streets covered in shards of glass. The Blackstone explosion cracked the wall of Jersey City's Town Hall and even shook the Brooklyn Bridge. The Blackstone explosion was considered the first major terrorist attack in the United States. So we'll just leave it at that. While hundreds of people were injured in the explosion, there were only four confirmed deaths. And this is diff this is weird. Th this is according to history. There's only four confirmed deaths. I've seen four. I've seen seven. I've seen nine. And I just read another one that said there were eight deaths. So, yeah. So the victims of the Black Tom explosion were Jersey City Police Officer James Doherty, Railroad Chief of Police Joseph Leiden, an unnamed barge captain, and Arthur Tosin. Arthur was a 20-week-old baby who died as a result of being launched out of his crib and pissed off. So police arrested the two Depot watchmen and accused them of causing the Black Tom explosion. The police believe that it was caused when the watchmen lit oil-burning lamps to keep the mosquitoes away. So that is was the original thought. So that it was they, they lit oil lamps because the mosquitoes were so bad and they and that started the fire that led to the explosion. That was the original working theory. It was eventually determined that the oil lamps were not the cause of the fire or explosion as the watchman and Toro were cleared. The next theory was that the fire and explosion were an accident, not a result of the Blackstone explosion. So like I said, the oil lamps, there was supposedly no fires on the island, the Blackstone being more important, or explosives, sorry. <laughs> so, but they lit lamps because the lamps made the, you know, the oil lamps made the mosquito, less mosquitoes, and they lit the lamps. But it's one of those weird things that, like, I've read a whole report on, or a whole police report on it from the, from the original, and that they left it on the left to go get the fire department, 
but there was no sign of an actual fire or anything that was there at the ranch camp. It was really weird. Really weird. So, another theory was tied to a Slavic immigrant, Michael Kristoff. Kristoff was said to have started the fires in exchange for around 500 bucks, which at that time was quite a bit of money. Kristoff said the two guards at Blacktown Island were secretly building fires. The Blacktown explosion was believed to have been triggered by the detonation of cigar bombs. Cigar bombs were thin pine bombs designed by Dr. Walter Scheele, a German explosive writer, and led to two German spies who worked the German for the German ambassador to America, Count Johann Heinrich von Bernstorff, and involved von Bernstorff was accused of being a spy master and had helped in Captain Franz von Newton, a German imperial minister. The Spectre for two German spies, Lothar Witzke and Kurt Jahnke, additionally Michael Kristoff was included, the former still are considered legally responsible for both fires. So, but that's one of those things that a lot of people don't realize too. When they talk about them being cleared, the, the original fire, that wasn't for years. For a long time, the, the narrative that they went with, which a lot of people wonder if that narrative was due to the president, Woodrow Wilson, not wanting to be in the war, saying, yeah, do not, under any circumstances, say that this was a terrorist attack. Because he knew, more than likely, that if all of a sudden they're like, oh yeah, Germany attacked the U.S. and blew up the, the naval, I mean, the, the air, I mean, the munitions storage facility, that people would be like, let's go kill those guys. Let's go get them. Let's get in the war, and at that time, we wanted nothing to do with them. Nothing to do with them. And they, again, like I said, went back to this and they were upset in Pearl Harbor. Kind of the same thing. A lot of people believe they just got into Pearl Harbor because, you know, they, well, I mean, they did get in Pearl Harbor. They get into World War II because of Pearl Harbor. So, and there's a lot of people that want to believe that this was another attack if we had known at the time that someone had said, hey, by the way, um, you know, this is Germans, that we would have immediately been like, let's go do it. And we would have ended, you know, joined in World War One, which at the time was called the Great War. It was supposed to be the Great War and the war to end all wars. If you were to walk up to someone who was in that war, which is so funny, this Doctor Who episode brings up this, where they're talking to someone who's in the Great War and they're like, oh, World War One. They're like, wait, what do you mean one? You know, they didn't call it World War One. It was the Great War. Like, has anybody ever thought there'd be another one? You know. So, yeah. So, I mean, this was a huge explosion that damaged the Statue of Liberty. Millions of dollars of damage to the Statue of Liberty um, that had to be repaired. And her arm, which was never fully repaired, and which is why we've never, we, we didn't go get to go up in the polls on it. So up until 1916, you could go in the polls. Since 1916, in this explosion, you cannot. So, um, the aftermath. So the Lehigh Valley Railroad Company issued damages against Germany after the Treaty of Berlin was signed. The German-American Mixed Claims Commission ruled in 1939 that Germany was responsible for the Blacktown explosion and that the U.S. and existing landowners were punished. This was 1939. It happened in 1916. It was not until... 1939, that Germany was officially said to be at fault for this. Up until that point, they were saying it was, you know, the 
Dolly Grip and start some action. Uh, lots of money for you know natural selection. Now she's refused to pay reparations. After World War II, the Germans owed $95 million to the Black Dawn Explosion, and the first payment was made in 1953. The debt was only paid off in 1979. Following the explosion, several federal and domestic intelligence agencies were founded. This is not a coincidence. This is why it's so surprising. Yeah. Um, the Black Dawn Explosion. Once you get down into it, you get into the meat and potatoes of this. You get down the rabbit hole. Following the explosion, several federal and domestic intelligence agencies were founded. Listen to that again. Several federal and domestic intelligence agencies were founded. An example was Manhattan lawyer J. Edgar Hoover was appointed the deputy of the then Bureau of Investigation which he overhauled as now the Federal Bureau of es- Investigation. Several laws were passed in the U.S., including the Freedom and Espionage Act, Sabotage Act, and other wartime laws and regulations. This explosion was basically the catalyst that brought us George Gahoon, which we haven't gone down that rabbit hole yet, but he is a Think about that for a minute. This explosion that nobody talks about is considered one of the, the things that brought about George Gahoon. And I say several federal and domestic intelligence agencies. What other ones were there? I don't know. Can you take a guess? Um, which eventually became the CIA, which was Those are the things that you got to, you know, looking at the Black Tom explosion. Some of the, I mean, insanity to think about everything that happened. Anyway, um, and for the fact that people didn't believe at first and didn't immediately think that Germany. Or, you know, this this was some kind of sabotage. That would have been my thought right at first. Because here's the thing that a lot of people don't think about. You know, munitions manufacturing was huge at that time. And like I said, we stayed out of the war at first. So the first couple of years of World War One, the United States was officially neutral and adopted a policy akin to isolation, isolation that would continue to sell munitions, munitions to both sides. So technically they did sell to both sides. They kind of hid the fact that they were just buying it. But we've never done that before. That's not a typical American thing. However, most of these were being sold to the, you know, Allies, Russia, Britain, and France. Um, and partly because the British Navy was blockading, you know, blocking German supply lines. In 1916, trade between Britain and the United States shot up over 300% from what it previously was in 1914. The same time period, trade with Germany dropped to 15%. Germany foresaw this outcome and at the onset of the war in 1914 had sent a new ambassador named Count Johann von Bernstorff along with a new counsel to the United States. These men were not sent to negotiate or make treaties. No, they were intelligence agents to spy on the United States and sabotage anything that might be sent to aid those allies of Britain, France, and other countries. New York was targeted heavily by these sabotages. Much of America's munitions were produced in the greater New York area with 75% of all of the 
Eastern missions alignments set to European allies originating here in New York. One place in particular joined one of the knockout efforts in New York, Mehmed, you know, you see all the talk about, you know, Mehmed Promontory that just sat just off the coast of New York near Lower Manhattan in Kansas City. So there's a bunch, and there's a book, which I've read a little bit of it, uh, Sabotage of Black Dawn by George Whitfield. It says that the small island also probably housed the most extensive arsenal anywhere outside the war zone itself. By 1916, however, much Eastern missions were not being sent overseas, quick enough to be assured of their cargo ships, thanks in part to Germany's unrestricted submarine warfare. Gunpowder bullets and artillery shells were crammed inside a warehouse of Versailles and rail cars awaiting shipment. The island was regularly and figuratively, figuratively disappointed by the spread of the war. So, and that's one of the big things that, you know, a lot of people don't realize. How much, you know, Germany was already here. And if you go back and look at some of the history, they had already blown up a couple other empires. Um, not this big, but they had already blown up a couple others in, in preparation for this. Um, so the fact that nobody immediately was like, well, I thought this was for Germany, was, like I said, partly propaganda because, you know, the president in the United States asked him to do this. He did not want to do it. So he knew the second he knew it was Germany, we were going to citizens would be pissed if they they attacked us if it was Germany and not only did they damage the Statue of Liberty you know and that would be a big thing for America and America is a big thing for each and every one of us so um, this is the idea of what they think really happened so on the night of July 29 1916 German saboteurs snuck past the soldiers on watch at those islands and proceeded to Black Hawk approached the island and easily snuck past the eight guards, which here it says eight. Everywhere else I've read it only says two. Um, placing explosives and setting small pl fires all over the hastily, uh, before hastily leaving. At 2.08 a.m. on Sunday, July 30th, 1916, the planned bomb detonated and the escape explosions ripped through the Black Dawn Railroad. Fires began to spread through munition-laden rail cars and warehouses. Some of the men on the island called for the fire department, but most ran away as they knew what would happen if they tried to use the remnants of the gunpowder to blow up the munitions. The missile blast shattered all the windows in the Black Dawn and surrounding islands and wrecked everything in or nearby. Captain Alfred P. Schlichter, commander of Company G of the United States Army Signal Corps, and was in charge of the soldiers on board those islands, when he was awoken by the blast, he immediately ordered that the two officers in charge of the bugler sound the German alarm. His first priority was to get all the women and children to safety. Luckily, most of them were already awake from the explosion, and most were on their way to the parade ground. He ordered that they make for the base of the Statue of Liberty, where they could be easily looked after and had some protection from the explosion. This quick thinking answered some questions. A half hour later, just as women and children had reached the statue's base, a second, much larger explosion ripped through Black Dawn Island. Um, two million tons of war supplies packed in rail cars had unloaded and exploded, obliterating everything in its path. People were thrown from their beds. Thousands of windows in Lower Manhattan were virtually shattered. Pieces of wood, brick, and steel went flying and scrapping like pop. Marked the Statue of Liberty. The concussion of the blast forced the supports of the Statue of Liberty to bend out of place and touch the ground, causing permanent structural damage. To this day, people are still not allowed to walk on the turf for this very reason. The explosion was of approximately 5 mm scale and was considered a moderate earthquake and unexpected in Anglo American history. Watchmen atop the Woolworth Building in Lower Manhattan observed the tremendous blast. According to the newspaper, thinking their time had come, Black Dawn Island remained unmarked. 
Fires rage on throughout the morning as you continue to consume your frozen barges. The sea eye is bordering down and smelling the isolated frozen pots off the edge of the island. Ever so often in our fairy tale, she can be seen skipping across the water and then detonating after traveling roughly a mile up. Firefighters attempt to put out the blazes, but the constant wind stops and a bullet prevent them from entering the scene. Doctors and nurses rush to the land to reinstate the wounded. Remarkably, precious few were seriously injured. It is estimated that between four and seven people perished, none of which being a day to day experience necessary to bring them back to life. By the time the sun peeked over the horizon, much of the island had been nothing but shards, smoke, and ruins. Nearly all of the 13 manor houses were completely leveled, and those that survived were blown apart or skateboarded towards the wreck, like the buildings would be. Six crews were destroyed, and many of the barges attached had also caught fire due to the wind and cargo. A huge crater was found there, where 87 rail cars full of dynamite had exploded and left a massive hole in the earth, as seen below the surface. Water seeped in and formed a giant pond filled with bullets. Nearby Alice Island was not spared from damage either. Although the brick buildings held up well, the windows were all blown out and the rest of the manor buildings fell in. No other immigrants could be seen there. That would be taking the manor and surrounding buildings to completely collapse. In all, there was an estimated $3 million worth of property damage due to explosions, which would equal over 475,000. Like I said, at first, law enforcement arrested railroad railroad officials, warehouse owners, and barge operators were told to remove the debris from Manswater, although the shore areas had been declared unsafe with no workers to be found. So sad, I really can't get over that. I've always been so sad. Um, some of the dock guards were also arrested for using smudge pots, shooting mosquitoes away, and also were discovered with injuries to their feet after catching fire, but again, no fatalities. Could not find any evidence of any such fatalities in the area. So, and that's basically, you know, like I said, the rundown of the where it gets really interesting too like I said you know where the initial investigation came in they just using the investigation as rapid arrow as they could federal state and local agency all try to take charge of the case slowing the investigation down we haven't seen that before oh I got the suspect no you're the so yeah the secret service was ordered by the president to investigate but proved to be rather incompetent and did not find enough evidence the Bureau of Investigation the precursor of the FBI also conducted an investigation but was severely limited as they only had 460 employees and a few field officers. Railroad investigators sought limited uh, success. In the end, it turned out to be the bomb squad from the New York Police Department that proved to be the best investigators. Finding many clues and pieces together to unknown events. Despite their hard work, the lack of resource and manpower was too much and failed to obtain sufficient opinions. There was one thing that all agencies could initially agree on, that it was not the work of police factories establishments and closures that had been caused by these failures in the past authorities were rather naive and did not shoulder blame to you know germany until much later when the evidence was practically smacking them in the face part of this was because german americans had always integrated well into american society and the asylum was part of the black family culture officials had a difficult time believing that german nationals could find such tragedies took many years of lawyers digging through records and additional federal investigation to determine if the explosions or the plot They didn't immediately be like, I think it's Germany. No, they actually at first said, no, it's not It's not Germany. They couldn't have done this to us. Our German brothers would never do this. Wow. Wait for a couple more years and see what Germany does. So some changes. The disaster changed how Homeland Security was conducted, and they reflected a chain of command. And 
ਫੋਨ ਤਾਂ ਹੀ ਸੀ ਹੈ ਜੋ ਸੋਚਣ ਦੀ ਗੱਲ ਹੈ ਸੰਦ ਸ਼ਾਖਿਤ ਪ੍ਰਤੀ ਦੇ ਐਡਰੈਸ ਦੇ ਸੈਂਡਿੰਗ ਬਲੌਕਸ ਬਲੌਕਸ ਆਰ ਟੇਕਿੰਗ ਅ ਡਿਸੀਜਨ ਇਟ ਹੈਸ ਟੂ ਐਸਟੀ ਨਾਊ ਦੈਟ ਇਟਸ ਡਿਫਾਈਨਡ ਐਗਜ਼ੈਕਟਲੀ ਐਸਟੀ ਨਾਊ ਇਜ਼ ਵੈਲ ਯੂ ਮੇ ਬੀ ਐਲੀਗੇਟਡ ਫਾਰ ਫੋਨ ਸਿਗਨਲ ਪ੍ਰੋਡਿਊਸਡ ਐਂਡ ਨਾਟ ਪੇਇੰਗ ਅ ਨੈਸ਼ਨਲ ਟੈਕਸ ਦੀਸ ਐਕਟੀਵਿਟੀਜ਼ ਇੰਕਲੂਡ ਕਲੈਕਟਿੰਗ ਇਨਫੋਰਮੇਸ਼ਨ ਅਬਾਊਟ ਦਿਸ ਸਿਕਿਉਰਡ ਮੈਟਰ ਬੇਸਿਕ ਨੀਡਸ ਸਪੈਸੀਫਿਕ ਹੈ ਕੰਪਿਊਟਰ ਐਕਸੈਸ ਕੈਨ ਡਿਸਵੇਟ ਅਦਰਸ ਫਰਮ ਜੋਇਨਿੰਗ ਇਨ ਸਰਵਿਸਸ ਕਾਂਗਰਸ ਆਲਸੋ ਪਾਸ ਅਪ ਵਰਕਿੰਗ ਐਕਟ ਟੂ ਐਕਸਟੈਂਡ ਜੂਰਿਸਡਿਕਸ਼ਨ ਆਫ ਫੈਡਰਲ ਏਜੰਸੀਜ਼ ਐਂਡ ਪ੍ਰੋਵਾਈਡਡ ਮੋਰ ਫਾਈਨੈਂਸ਼ੀਅਲ ਰਿਲੀਫ ਲਾਈਨਿੰਗ ਅਪ ਜਸਟੀ ਨਾਊ ਐਕਟ ਇਟ ਪਾਸ ਇਟ ਇਜ਼ ਐਕਸਟੈਂਡਡ ਇਨ ਦ ਟ੍ਰੈਡੀਸ਼ਨਲ ਵੇ ਇਟਸ ਡਾਇਰੈਕਟਡ ਟੂ ਅਦਰ ਪੀਪਲ ਫਰਮ ਸਪੀਕਿੰਗ ਆਊਟ ਅਗੇਂਸਟ ਦ ਵਰਲਡ ਵੈਲ ਸਮ ਆਫ ਦੀਸ ਪ੍ਰੋਵਿਜ਼ਨਸ ਵੇ ਮੇਡ ਸਟਰਕ ਡਾਊਨ ਬਿਕਾਜ਼ ਦੇ ਦੇ ਵਰ ਇਨ ਡਾਇਰੈਕਟ ਕੰਟੈਕਟ ਵਿਦ ਫਰਸਟ ਅਮੈਂਡਮੈਂਟ ਇਟ ਡਿਡ ਹੈਵ ਫੈਡਰਲ ਏਜੰਸੀਜ਼ ਐਟ ਦਾ ਟਾਈਮ ਵੇਰੀਅਸ ਕੈਂਪੇਨਸ ਅਗੇਂਸਟ ਐਸਪੀਆਈ ਐਂਡ ਸਾਬਕਾਸ ਆਲਸੋ ਗੇਨਡ ਆਲਮੋਸਟ ਯੂਨੀਵਰਸਲ ਸਪੋਰਟ ਥਰੂ that's kind of the interesting stuff on that um like i said it, it's a very interesting one and this is one that like when i first heard about it brought a lot of interest to my mind because like i said it, it's basically you know they say we got jailed receiver because of this they put a new person in charge um there's a lot of people that think partly the OSS was starting to basically this was starting the beginnings of the OSS to fight espionage um there's a lot of things that black tom owned and this this massive past attack on you know american soil that made them basically put more into effect to protect us protect quote unquote protect um and gave the government more power which where have we seen that before i don't know 911 sorts of things where these huge terrorist attacks was what the government used to give themselves more power it's in their your best interests to protect us to protect us that we have to take this more power we don't want it we keep taking it because we need to to protect us because which is what they want us to believe. They want us to believe that they are the only ones that can protect us and that's where we're stuck. And this is one of those ones that I mean, I know I've completely gone off the whole idea of this being, you know, whatever the Mandela effect, but because I mean, that's not my biggest thought on this. My biggest thought on it is look how much they were able to, you know, the new acts they were able to throw in every time hidden it not really hidden anything and it's been hidden in plain sight but it's one of those things why don't we know about this why aren't our children taught about this stuff why isn't this taught right around per- pearl harbor i mean pearl harbor yes i get it pearl harbor thousands of men and women perished when the japanese bombed pearl harbor thousands amazingly only 4 to 7 but it was still a massive attack a massive explosion on US soil an explosion that was felt 90 miles away and felt so much that people were knocked out of their bed and woken up by it how are we not learning about this stuff 
Cowboys is something that we don't trust. Is this once again because they wanted to be hidden and be hidden for so long so that we, you know, we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't be upset with him with Germany? I mean, I just don't get it. It's, it's fascinating. The most fascinating part about this is the fact that we don't know yet. And why don't we know yet? You know, it's insane to me that we don't learn about how horrible this was. And I believe you on that. Um, yeah, l- let me know your thoughts on this. Let me know if this is something that I- if this is something you've heard about. If this is something that you've never heard about, if you thought that, holy crap, say what? Um, it's insane um, that you know this 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 is what this is what happened. That we don't learn about this. Like this isn't something that we are, you know, we should be taught in school about this. And somehow we're not. But like I said, go down the rabbit hole. Tell me what your thoughts are on this. Um, yeah, just let me know. Let me know what your thoughts are on this. Because this one, this one to me, which I know sometimes I, I, I find things fascinating. People are like, oh, what the heck? But I found this amazing. So definitely let me know your, your thoughts on this one. Go look for it. It's fascinating to know that this happened. And everything else, but before I go on this one, I do because we already we did finish a little short on this one. I want to go in on another fascinating history thing that is going to be short, isn't going to take long, but fascinated me. And another one that, as somebody who is a runner, I know I already I said I'm almost up to it. I just finished my Olympic distance uh, triathlon. Um, but one of my friends pointed out to me, if you've never looked up or heard of the 1904 Olympic marathon and what happened. This is one of the biggest shit shows I've ever heard of in the news. Um, so it was a 90-degree August afternoon in 1904. 32 men dressed largely in white with leather belts gathered at Francis Olympic Field, a newly constructed stadium in St. Louis, drink all the men in silk and silk tie hats. They were about to compete in what would become the most infamous marathon in history. The event was part of the Louisiana Purchase Exposition, also known as the 1904 World's Fair. Within the crowd of dapper onlookers was the man in whose honor the stadium was named, David R. Francis, a former Missouri governor and president of the Olympic Committee, Holy Office Jones. At 3.03 p.m., 3.03, who starts a marathon in the afternoon? So, yeah, uh, I've done so many marathons, and very rarely, unless it's a, for a special purpose, you start in the morning, because at 3.03 in the afternoon, it's hard. And we're talking about an August afternoon in 1904. So August afternoon, like this August, like just being in, in Seattle right now, we're in the 90s and it's, you know, sucks. You know, I can't imagine what it was like in 1904. You know, it's a 90-degree August afternoon. So 3.03 p.m., they fire, fire the starting gun, so, so began the first Olympic marathon race on U.S. soil. The race started with five laps around the track and a period of lead changes, aiming to cast the large American name against three previous Boston Marathon runners, 
none of them would finish. In fact, only 14 men eventually completed the race. One after hitchhiking, one after taking a nap, and one who eventually pulled an edelist after drinking strychnine mixed with raw egg and brandy. Not only would the percentage of finishers rank as the lowest of any Olympic marathon, but the event itself would be marred by the the racism that pervaded and even guided the 1918 Olympics in the U.S. Senate. Frank Frank Pierce from the Seneca Nation, the first Native American to complete, or sorry, to compete in the Olympics, briefly took to the front. Pierce was followed closely by fellow Americans Arthur Newton, Thomas Hicks, and Sam Young. As the men made their third lap, another American, Fred Bowers, took a turn in the lead. Bowers, a bricklayer by trade, had the much needed leg of the sprinter, but had finished in the top five of the previous three Boston marathons. Close behind the race came Sturge Patterson from 1903 Boston Saint John Gordon, Irish born but living through the United States, began vomiting and lost most of his time. His legs were still standing. Hicks, who finished second behind Lillian of Boston in the previous year, passed Bowers to lead racers out of the stadium. Hicks reportedly made his living as a professional clown, and in the few surviving pictures of the race, Hicks appeared to be the most serious man in St. Louis, standing uncomfortably straight at the start line like a man possessed. Riding on the dirt, ro- the dirt roads around Francis Field, this thing was all very cool in the Hicks song. The runners were greeted by red flags marking the route. The man responsible for those flags, along with much financial support from the U.S. Olympics, was James E. Sullivan, head of the physical sculpture department of the U.S. Park. Sullivan intended to use the game to showcase white American excellence. a series of events that ran from the poorly executed from the poorly executed like the marathon to the continuously racist like the failed Olympic college event the Trudeau Olympic trial competition during which non-Olympic families from the various living anthropology displays competed in sports they never played before the idea was to flaunt their athletic inferiority to the world the headline in the St. Louis Post dispatched barbarians ranked from the athletic games made no game of the Boston intention Yes. Um, so Sullivan, Sullivan also designed the 24.85 mile race. 26.2 became the standard in 1921. As an experiment to test its own exercise science theories, two combined weights were called purpose and dehydration. As a runner, that just makes me want to throw up. Scream. Following the conventional wisdom of the time, Sullivan insisted that drinking or eating during exercise would only upset the stomach. Accordingly, there was only one water station in the course near an area of heat. Nine degree heat, one water station near an area of heat. Three miles in, Newton, who'd run bronze just the day before in the steeplechase, held fifth. The same as his finishing position in the 1900 Olympic marathon, Hicks, the professional clown, fell back to seventh and had a poorly reflected time in New York representing a marathoner who lived in Chicago and worked at a slaughterhouse near Mount. Falling close behind were M. Tunyon and Jan, Jan Masaryan, both running their first marathon. The two members of South Africa's Saswana tribe were the first black Africans to complete the race. In fact, they were the only black African athletes to represent that nation until the end of apartheid in 1986. Or sorry, the end of apartheid 86 years later. So that would have actually been in early to 1984. Um, Swana and Masiani had no formal racing experience, only in St. Louis performing the World's Fair 
Bauer War Exhibition, Fauna and Oceania have been message runners for the Bowers and were part of the past hundreds of twice a day international gatherings from the recent second Bauer War between Dutch farmers, Bowers and the British Empire and Turkish factions as spectators. Leading the way out of the stadium was a vanguard of horsemen riding ahead of the racers to clear the gravel way. Right behind them, a motorcade of journalists, doctors, support teams, and race officials followed, producing a steady brown cloud that enveloped the runners for most of the course. So they're running down this dirt road through the mountains of Boston. At six miles, Newton led with 1902 Boston champ Sam Muller in pursuit on the dusty road. Behind them were Lords and Felix Carval Carvajal, a Cuban mailman, who'd arrived at the race with a long-sleeved shirt, hat, pants, heavy shoes, and a little mustache. So, a helpless Samaritan assisted Carvel in cutting his pants into shorts prior to the start of the race. Carvajal had raised the money for his journey to America by running expeditions in his native Cuba, but after gambling away his funds on a layover in the Leonese, he'd hitchhiked the rest of the way to St. Louis. Carvajal was among the favorites to win, however, he was also uh, a Christie fan, frequently stopping for mid competition banter with spectators. So he kept stopping to talk to people. <laughs> Approaching the 10-mile marker, Fred Lors, plagued by muscle cramps, flagged down a car for a ride back to Francis Field. Carvajal also stopped but declined the snack. According to some accounts, <laughs> and I've read most of these papers plenty of times, so I guess not. Carvajal ate rotten apples from an orchard along the road. One rider observed Carvajal playfully swiping pizzas from spectators after they denied his request for treats. Either way, Carvajal suffered from stomach cramps and lay down to take a short nap. So in the middle of the race, took a nap. Mile 12, the racers encountered the well that served as the main water source, and Sullivan had intended to test purposeful dehydration in the race by observing how athletes would perform in high-intensity work on a hot summer day with a limited amount of water available to drink. Undeterred by the fact that fewer than half of his marathoners finished, he'd later write a book, 99 Miles Marathon Runner which reiterated his continued belief in the power of water abstinence. Don't get into the habit of drinking and eating in a marathon race. Some prominent runners do, but it is not beneficial, he wrote. As a marathon runner, bullshit. Water and hike. Fuel. Hydration and fuel are the, the, the mainstays. So, yeah. Um, halfway through the marathon, Meller was leading, with Newton and Hertz respectively in second and third place. Meller had been the pre-race favorite, in addition to his Boston win, he'd podiumed in in 1901 and 1923, and he'd won the Pan American Expedition Marathon in 1921. In 104-degree heat, at this time, Muller's pace slowed by mile 16 to combat cramping. By another count, he incorrectly believed he'd taken a wrong turn and tired himself out running backward on the course, and inflation soon dropped out of the race, which he took the lead. Nothing that you needed. Hicks, now beyond the water station, began to grow desperately thirsty. He had two traders following in his car, and he began to beg them for a drink of water. They refused, but instead gave his mouth and shoulders a sponge bath and attempted to relieve the thirst without hydrating correctly. So they didn't hydrate him. They just put water on him. <laughs> Near mile 19, William Garcia, racer out of San Francisco, who was in fourth place at the time, collapsed. He likely experienced the closest rush with death of any marathoner that day. On the side of the road, he began coughing up blood and passed out before being discovered and taken to the hospital. A combination of heat, dehydration, and roughly two hours of running through dust clouds landed Garcia in surgery for a best-known dysphagitis and a torn stomach lining. 
Bills, meanwhile, feeling refreshed after riding on a car for 11 miles after a championship hold, they decided to continue the last mile on foot into the stadium and across the finish line to claim victory in under three minutes. Just as first daughter Alice Roosevelt Longworth was crowning Rose as the victor, a spectator revealed that Rose had been driven along the course. Rose defended his victory as merely a joke, but the stunt earned him a lifetime ban. As Rose was explaining himself away, Hicks held the lead with roughly four miles remaining, but he continued to suffer from dehydration. His trainers, making history, decided to give him something stronger than the damp sponge. In the first recorded instance of performance-enhancing drug use in the Olympics, Hicks was fed a combination of egg whites and one milligram of strychnine sulfate. They gave him rat poison. In high doses, this compound disease is rat poison. At lower doses, however, it is a stimulant and currently prohibited for in in competition use by the World Anti-Doping Agency. Strychnine. It's a dope. <laughs> All right. A ghastly Hicks continued, but his already mechanical form deteriorated and his pace slowed as he stopped to walk up a hill two miles from the finish. This earned Hicks a second dose of the strychnine mixture plus a swig of brandy. It worked. Hicks picked up his pace to finish in 3 hours and 28 minutes. He was the slowest winning marathon time in Olympic history at a 30-minute margin. Albert Corey finished second at 3 hours and 34 minutes, and 13 minutes later, Newton took third place. Chavall's recovery nap delivered him the fourth, while in Panama, despite being chased a mile off course by a dog, so he was attacked by rabid dogs. And see, I've heard a dog, and I've also heard a pack of rabid dogs run after him. And remember, he was one of the African, South African. Uh, he took ninth, and Mastiani was 12th. After the podium, no finish times were recorded, or they were lost, but finishers took lead to Alice. Goldmiller and his time claimed the marathon as the evidence of racial superiority they sought, despite producing an event that was almost entirely stocked with white runners, many coaches in tow. Charles J.P. Lucas, a physician and writer who traveled by car observing and assisting Hicks, wrote in his journal entitled Book in Olympic Games 1994 that the marathon established the stamina of the Caucasian race and the superior distance and time. His book did not mention that while Tuani and Marciani finished 9th and 12th, a white South African teammate, Brady Harris, never managed to recover his spot. So, the entry near the race, however, settled quickly. Two days after appearing in the post-dispatch schedule on the marathon event, he reported that Olympic team members were planning on his removal from future games. Colvin jumped on the back bandwagon and quickly turned down the event, but the trouble was his following time at Beijing 25 mile run was often too much. It's been an endurance. Sullivan's bid to end the Olympic marathon failed, and events continued at the 1908 London Games, notably having one 1904 competitor returning, Nick Patrick Sidney Hicks. Sullivan did have one perverse victory in 1908, though. In addition to being a white supremacist, he was also an outspoken misogynist and was the lead of the U.S. Olympic Committee who was able to bar American winners from competing in London. If Atlas Coates had been on his racing side, once again, 1908 would also mark the first Olympic gold medal awarded to a black athlete, George Pooley, who ran in the one mile distance interview with Radio Sport. So, <laughs> all right. So, Hicks would never run another marathon, and like many of the athletes, including Tuani and Marciani, practically disappeared from the storied history after the race. Corey became a Chicago racing owner in the early iteration of the Chicago Marathon and winner in 1908. Newton would compete in his third event at the Games four days later, taking gold in the four-mile team race that fielded two teams, both from the Minnesota and Norwegian squad. Um, and 
Bears brought him down to the roster within a year. He later went on to play for the Boston Bears. Darvin Hall continued to travel for marathons in 1985 when he finished as the 3rd inaugural All-Western Marathon. The following year, the Cuban government banned Greece from any participation in the marathon, and Darvall disappeared from Italy after being presumed dead due to a ruptured obituary. He reappeared in Havana several months later in 1987. This fascinates me. To go back and read some of these things, as someone who is a runner now, and to know what we should be doing, and to read those about what they had these runners doing in Cuba at the time. They gave them strict nine. To make it better, they had them running at three o'clock in the afternoon in the mid of middle of the heat. Um, there's so many things I learned about that, and it, it fascinates me to see how different things were then. Um, the things that they would do, you know, in Sullivan on this run. That's one thing that I, I actually find fascinating is is we see this even now, where people put things together in a way to show to prove. They're right. And in this one, he wanted to prove that the white Caucasian male was better. So he he ran the finish with white Caucasian males and put in, you know, two people from some from South Africa. Um, which amazes me to think that, you know, why? Why were they chased by dogs? Was that on accident, or was that like one of them getting a little too close and they had to like push them off a little bit so they don't get you know let let the Caucasians get ahead? But it's one of those things we see nowadays. We see in a lot of things. We see it, you know, in everything going on with COVID now. No one wants to point out the fact that you know old Joe has COVID for the second time, but he's fully boosted, fully vaccinated. And I'll be honest, it's really interesting to me to notice that most of my friends that are fully vaccinated, fully boosted, and everything else are the ones that seem to be, at least in my area, to be the ones that are getting COVID over and over again. Getting it through two, three, four times. Where the ones of us that, you know, aren't fully boosted and everything else, I think I might have it. It's always funny how people try and make things look the way they look, and that's what they did on that Olympics. They try and make it look like the Caucasian male was better. You know, what other things have they put into and made to put it look better? You stack the numbers, you stack the data, you can make it look like whatever you want. So, just things to look at. Look at your look at things with an open mind. Don't go with exactly what they're telling you. Go through and research and look. Research and look, and you can also find out you know, how things are so wrong now or then that at that time we would have believed to be so right. Like I said before, I teach like first aid and all that stuff, and some of the things I know about blowing smoke up your ass because originally you believe that's how you woke up with your arm addicted. You used to blow with nicotine smoke and blew smoke up their ass. That's what they believed. At one point, point they believed that it was the runner to get them going instead of water give them some brandy egg whites and strychnine that'll help them out do your research people never believe what they tell you do your research check it check you know trust but verify you know 
favorite words ever. Trust but verify. And I'm not even trusting anymore. I'm verifying. Verify, verify, verify. Just because you hear it, just because they say it, just because someone who has a degree says that this is the way it is, doesn't mean they're right. Because at one point, to me, I actually believe that giving a man raw egg, brandy, and strychnine is going to help him win an argument. Well, actually, it's not. But then the other guy honestly thought that dehydration would help a woman. So just because people believe it doesn't mean it's true. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for listening to my insanity, my crazy rant. Um, let me know what you thought. Let me know what you have for ideas on any other episodes. You can find this you know, at NWCG Radio um, on Sunday nights, Channel 1. Uh, you can find this on Fringe Radio Network great guys over there. You can have, find some other good fun episodes over there. You can email us at downtherh at protonmail.com and you can find me on Instagram at mister underscore b underscore 666. That's m-i-s-t-e-r underscore b underscore 666. Thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed this and I'll talk to you again on Sunday.